I like the lyrical passages. It goes where things that were difficult to do in translation but could be successfully done in the end. So his dream sequences and Bolaño's flights into poetry. He was originally a poet, and, and every once in a while it just flowers up. I, I really enjoyed those things. The Savage Detectives, I, I loved the characters. So in that sense, it was a pleasure to work on the novel. You know, it's satisfying to work on a writer, on a really good writer, because it makes it easier as a translator. Even in the most difficult passages, you can trust the writer, and you don't feel as if you're a part editor, part translator. That was translator Natasha Wimmer. Natasha is best known for her translation of Roberto Bolaño's astonishing novels, The Savage Detectives and 2666. Welcome to Artworks, the program that goes behind the scenes with some of the nation's great artists to explore how art works. I'm your host, Josephine Reed. If you've read The Savage Detectives or 2666 in English, then you know the debt of gratitude that you owe Natasha Wimmer. The translation was a monumental task of monumental work. 2666, for example, clocks in at close to 900 pages. Bolaño's characters range from an African-American journalist who's an ex-Black Panther to a Mexican woman who's psychic, from street thugs to literary critics. And his language is equally broad, moving from Mexican slang to flowery poetic musings. In an early part of 2666, one sentence runs for four and a half pages without a full stop. But Natasha Wimmer more than rose to the challenge. Although how she pulled off the translation with such fluidity and grace is nothing short of amazing. And it brings up the whole intriguing question of translation itself, of the intellectual acrobatics needed to move literature successfully from one language to another. I had the opportunity to speak with Natasha Wimmer, who had been awarded an NEA fellowship to translate Bolaño's novel 2666. I began our conversation by asking her how she made a career out of translating. By a sort of circuitous route, there really isn't a professional route for people to become translators in this country. And I learned Spanish as a child. I lived in Spain for four years with my parents. And then I ended up studying Spanish literature in college. And after college, I decided to come to New York and work in publishing. And I loved working with books. I discovered that I didn't love being diplomatic every day. So I thought about trying to find something where I could... Um, a little less contact with people, and being a translator is pretty much the perfect job for that. And it just so happened that I had been working on a lot of translations. I was working at Ferris, Strauss, and Drew, which publishes a lot of translations. And a book came over my desk. I was looking for a translation for it. It was by a Cuban writer, Pedro Juan Gutierrez, called Dirty Havana Trilogy. And we weren't having any luck finding anyone who was agreeable to the editor-in-chief. And finally, I decided, well, maybe I'll try to do a sample myself. And so I got in through the back door, sort of nepotistically, and that was how it started. I think we all know that door. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you landed the translation project of the decade, which is translating the two epic novels by Roberto Bolano. Again, just amazing luck. Those books were picked up by Ferris, Dress, and Giroux, and I had actually read them on submission for FSG. So in other words, I read the book, wrote a report, and let them know what I thought about them. Um, I was really blown away by them. And 
you know, I let FSG know that I would love to translate them, but I didn't think that I would have a chance because Bologna already had a translator, Chris Andrews, who's a fantastic translator. And he had done some of the shorter books for New Directions. But as it turned out, he wasn't able to do those two longer books. And so I was the lucky second choice. Did you have any particular reason for wanting to translate him? They were the best books that I had read in any language for years and years. So, yes, I think I, I had a pretty good sense. I had no idea that they would be as big as they were, but I knew that they were important books. And I and I really loved them, especially The Savage Detectives. I just completely fell in love with that book. You know, I'm curious about the whole art of translation because it is an art. You're not taking something from one language and giving us a word-for-word transcription into English. You do a lot more than that. You have to interpret it. Yeah, there's a certain amount of cultural translation that goes on, and you do add a little bit of context, and you try to do it as unobtrusively as possible. That's essentially what you're talking about. It's both an art and a science. Yeah, it's it's not. Yeah, it's maybe not so much of a science. Although definitely, as I've translated more and more books, there are certain solutions that I fall back on, and you know, especially translating the same writer over and over again. Now I've translated five or six of Bologna's books. There are certainly tricks of language that he uses, and then I've figured out how to uh, work out in English. I'm trying to think of a good example of something that needs to ex- be explained culturally. Well, there are certain things that I have to research myself. I'm thinking, for example, of a moment in The Savage Detectives where there's a reference to El Santo, which literally translates as the saint. And I spent some time in Mexico City while I was translating the book. And before I was in Mexico City, I had no idea who El Santo could could be. And then the minute I got to Mexico City, I realized his, his posters were all over the place. He's the most famous masked wrestler in Mexican history. So somehow, I don't remember exactly how I got that into the text. Somehow I had to communicate to the reader that, that he was who he was. Here's the thing. You start with Bolano's two major works. As you said, Chris Andrews had interpreted his earlier work, which had been much shorter. Mm-hmm. Did you feel like you were just pushed into the deep end of the pool? Do you think it might have been a little bit easier, less challenging if you if you could if you had transitioned into the big work? <laughs> Yes and no. And the reason I say no is because not only are the earlier books shorter, but they're also very different. Bolaño is one of those writers who seems to have a different register for every novel. And so in some ways, the shorter books wouldn't have been great preparation for The Savage Detectives, which is, I think, Bolaño's most personal novel and also his most colloquial novel. The other two are more formally experimental. I mean, The Savage Detectives is too, but less obviously so. And I think that no matter when I translated it, The Savage Detectives would have been the most difficult novel to translate. 2666, in comparison, is actually easier to translate, or I found it to be easier. Do you um, think it's because you did The Savage Detectives first, or just the No, I don't. I think style. that that had something to do with it, but I think it's also a... It's written from the third person, mostly. The Savage Detectives is in the first person and, and is told from the voice of many different characters. The 2666 has a more formal, removed, kind of cool tone to it. And The Savage Detectives is more colloquial, more local. There's a lot of Mexican slang, and that's always what's most difficult for the translator, at least what I find most difficult. Yeah, I want to talk pretty specifically, especially about The Savage Detectives. One part, the middle section, where it's actually called The Savage Detectives. Yes. 400 pages. Right. 50 narrators, and they're all distinct. Yep. And it takes place over 20-something years, Mm -hmm. 20 years. Those are a lot of voices 
to keep your mind wrapped around and keeping those voices distinct is quite a feat. Yeah, although I didn't experience it that way so much when I was translating it. I think because Bolaño gives a lot of great cues and details. And so it wasn't all language. It was also something that Bolaño had worked into the fabric of the text in a way that wasn't all tied to language. You know, obviously there were certain characters who had certain tics. There was Amadeo Salvatierra, the old man who had grown up in the 1920s, and, and there's certain that I did to make him sound like someone from the 1920s. Okay, when you say there are certain things you did to make him sound like the 1920s. More form, you know, more formal language, more certain archaisms. Uh, he's also very erudite, so, uh, but he's also funny, so it's sort of humor and, and but humorous academic language, which Bolaño actually does quite a bit of with different characters. Translating from Spanish, I would imagine, would be a challenge straight off the bat, even if you're not dealing with a writer like Bolano, because there are so many regional and different kinds of Spanish. Oh, absolutely, yes. And it's interesting because Bolaño spans so many of them, you know, because he was born in Chile and because he grew up in Mexico and, and later lived in Spain. My own formation was in Spain. And somewhat unfortunately because most of the writers I've ended up translating are Latin American and I wish I wish I had spent more time in Latin America but as it turns out Bolaño has a sort of hybrid kind of mishmash of of language and and I tried to get across some of that but that I think is what you do lose in the translation and I think that the that the novels live without that I think that there's more to them than the regionalisms hopefully but I did try to get across Bolaño's very idiosyncratic use of different regionalisms. And just just in the sense that I tried to use expressions that maybe sounded, well, The Savage Detectives, for example, set in the 1970s. So I tried to use language that would have not been out of place in the 1970s, but at the same time was not dated and, and um, stale seeming. And also was that was occasionally eccentric. I mean, there are times where I wasn't sure whether Bolaño had made up an expression or whether it was just a very obscure expression because he, he does range so widely. That's why I had to do a lot of research trying to work things like that out. But in the end, the way I tried to, to deal with it was to use somewhat neutral, somewhat, somewhat dated, I don't want to say dated, but somewhat, you know, uh, what's the word, from a certain time, language from a certain time period, but also expressions that sort of came out of nowhere and that might have, that might suggest Bolaño's sort of freewheeling use of language. He uses a lot of idiomatic language. Yes, he does. But the other thing about his style is that he uses non sequitur a lot to get across his effects. And I think that that comes across well in translation. That's not something that's lost. And his his particular brand of lyricism has this kind of opaque quality, which also comes across well in translation. He'll be, he writes very plainly and simply most of the time, but then all of a sudden he'll sort of fall off the cliff of extravagance. And, and that, too, I think is fairly easy to capture in translation. He's impressive because there are such a range of different voices with different Spanish, if you will, flowing throughout all of them. And it's almost as though he's doing this verbal sleight of hand mm-hmm. and you're the person sort of translating the ventriloquist, if you will. Yes. Yeah, and it is it is difficult, but at the same time, as I said before, I think that he's such a good character writer that he makes you believe in the character through all kinds of details that don't necessarily have to do with the language and or that or that are tied to the language in a way that just sort of pulls the translator along with him. I didn't feel like I was struggling to convey a voice. Usually I felt as if Bologna were helping me along. 
Do you have to fight to keep yourself out of it, or is that not no, an issue? No, that hasn't really been a problem for me. It's it's sort of more the, you know, it's kind of the issue of the tree, seeing the trees and not the forest. I'm just so deeply into it that it's sort of sentence by sentence, and I'm not, I'm not usually... You know, people ask me, me whether it was hard to translate the crime section from um, 2666, the part about the crimes. And, it, I, you know, I, I was worried about that before I translated it because it's just the account of one murder after another. But in the end, I, I, it didn't affect me viscerally. I, in fact, it was kind of like a game. I did a lot of forensic research and, and it's narrated very coolly and it didn't, it, it didn't affect me that way. It seems as though when you're translating, you're moving in two directions at once. You're really honing down and looking at the page word by word, sentence by sentence. And at the same time, there's all this research that you've done on the outside, and it's the combining of those two things that give us the translation. True. Although in my case, I usually do my research after the fact. Yeah. Okay. Walk us through the process. Well... 2666 yeah, I mean, is plumped on your desk. You know, probably it would behoove me to have done research earlier, but some, but it has just worked out for me that I, I don't really know what the problems are going to be until after I've translated it. And I do two passes, essentially, of the translation. And so so in between those two passes is when I do most of my research. But the way it works is, you know, I get the translation. I do a sort of two-stage translation early on. Or I just translate as fast as I can type. And then the next day I go over it. And then by the time I've gone over it that second time, it's about 80% clean. And then once I've done the whole book that way, I go back and I read and I, I go through the whole manuscript again. And it's in between those two stages when I do the research. Were there any voices that were particularly challenging to translate? Yes, definitely. It's been a little while since I did The Savage Detectives in 2666, and now I'm trying to think which one's... They were. There was, there was a Peruvian character in the Savage Detectives in that middle section who was very difficult to translate, partly because his voice, it revolved around a lot of Peruvianisms, and it seemed almost impossible to get that across in English. And I think what I did try to do for that. I think I, I, I left in a little bit of the Spanish, although I don't think that probably helped many people, except that they noted that it was, there was something foreign about the character. And the Peruvianisms that he used were, were kind of extravagant, and so I tried to get that extravagance into his language. Who else was difficult? Oh, there's a seer in 2666, Florita, and she's just she's sort of a rambling narrator, and there's a long section that she does about divination, which was really, really nearly impossible, and there were more. There definitely were more. I was going to say, how was translating the ex-Black Panther? Oh, my gosh, yes. Sorry, that he's, he's the most, absolutely most difficult of all. I don't know how I could have forgotten that. Um, you blocked it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, this is Bolaño writing as someone who's never even been to the United States, writing from the perspective of uh, a black journalist from Harlem who goes to Mexico. And, you know, and, and the Spanish is fairly neutral. So the question is, how much do I try to make him sound like uh, a black reporter from Harlem. And I was a bit cautious. My editor was the one who pushed me to, to take it a little bit farther and maybe push it a bit farther than Bolaño himself had gone. And I think that it worked out fairly decently. But it's, you know, that's very tricky ground. I, I certainly don't, you know, it doesn't necessarily come naturally. Well, there is a four and a half page long sentence in the first part of 2666. Four and a half pages without a full yep. stop. And here's what one reviewer said. 
For all its twists and turns, the sentence reads as if Bologna wrote it without breaking a sweat. And when I read that, I thought, well, let's hear it for the translator. <laughs> well, you know, those very long, complicated, intricately structured sentences are difficult. They are really difficult to translate. But actually, they're one of the more entertaining challenges of translation, at least for me. It's not like slang where you just feel like you're never, you know, no matter what you do, it's just never going to be really quite right. You can nail those sentences. And um, so they're so they're kind of fun to do. You know, it's almost math- mathematical. You're just rearranging parts of speech and and trying to fit things together. Spanish in some ways supports run-on sentences better than English, so it can be a bit more challenging. And Bolaño doesn't use, for example, it's interesting, I'm translating another Bolaño novel, novel now, which he uses semicolons quite a bit, but in The Savage Detectives in 2666, he almost never uses a semicolon. So that was sort of an, a weapon that was taken out of my arsenal. Um, I didn't feel that I could use that. So I had to rely on commas, and, and I did I did add a fair number of um, dashes. But yes, those, those sentences are, are fun. Let me ask you this. Is it different translating expository text versus dialogue? Yes. Yeah. And in some ways, I think that I've changed over the course of being a translator. I think at first I found expository text to be easier and dialogue to be harder. But as I feel more licensed to be freer in my translations, I've come to enjoy dialogue because I do feel that dialogue requires a translator to be freer. It's almost like poetry. You just have to let go a little bit. And when I feel the license to do that, which I do more so with dialogue than with expository prose, then in some ways it's easier. Is it hard balancing the writer's voice with the translator's voice? That's interesting. You should ask that. I do wonder about that sometimes. You know, obviously the translator has certain habits of language that are bound to infect the writer's, you know, the, the translated text. And I try to notice what those habits of mine are. And to and to curb them, um, I guess my hope is that the narrative itself is so strong that it will erase any little traces of, you know, language appropriation on my part. And I think that that is the case with Bolaño's fiction. I'm sure there are words, sentences that seem almost untranslatable. Yes. Well, yeah, it's slang, essentially. And, and and that's the frustrating part about being a translator. I was just thinking about this on the way over here for this interview. I was reading a, another book in translation. And it's very hard for me to read books in translation, especially from the Spanish, just because the wooden parts of it are so transparent to me. And I know that the same is true of my own translations. And so, it's, you know, it's an imperfect art. And I think that as a translator, at least, or at least for me, I'm, I'm, I'm often conscious of that and I find it frustrating. I guess my test recently has been, can I flip through the book and stop at any page and read a sentence and not feel like I want to hide under my desk? And more and more so I feel that way, but, but still it's, it isn't the same. It, it is, you know, it, you're, you are looking through the glass darkly to a certain extent. And so, yeah, that's, that's a bit difficult for the translator. What do you think makes literary translation different from translating something, I don't know, more prosaic, fundamental, like a manual, Max for Dummies? Yeah, I haven't done too much non-literary translation. I mean, you're looking for something different. All you're looking for in a technical text is comprehension. When you're reading a literary novel or any novel, you're looking to lose yourself in the language and to be sort of swept up by a writer's voice. And 
that's a very, very difficult thing to do. And, and that's why I think that narrative is so important in translation. I think that I really admire writers who translate texts that are all about language, that are more experimental. And I think that those texts can work. But I think that the most successful translations also have a really strong, not necessarily conventional, but have some sort of narrative that pulls you through it. Because I think that you need that. You need that to counter to counterbalance what you lose with the language. Well, aside from Bolano, you've translated works by Mario Vargas Llosa, Pedro Juan Gutierrez. Are there different challenges in translating works by authors, first of all, who are stylistically so different from one another? Oh, absolutely. I mean, one of the most obvious challenges is just that different writers from Latin America are writing in different different forms of Spanish, or, you know, Vargas Llosa is from Peru, and Pedro Juan Gutierrez is from Cuba, extremely difficult. But yes, and stylistically, there, there are huge differences, too. Vargas Llosa is the master of the complicated sentence. That's where I really cut my teeth on the, the very elaborate sentences. But on the other hand, his Spanish is not very regional anymore, or is not, is not very local anymore. It was in his earlier book, in his earlier novels, but for a long time now, he hasn't lived in Peru. And I think that his written language has taken on a sort of more neutral, sort of transatlantic flow, and, and that makes him easier to translate. And Pedro Juan Gutierrez is a good example of the most local possible writer. I mean, he's, you know, he lives in Cuba. He's always lived in Cuba, as far as I know. And um, it's, it's very, very, it's just very colloquial, and it's very hard to get. And what about Laura Restrepo? Am Laura I... Restrepo, yeah. Restrepo. Yeah, how, no, how you're very it... close. Well, she's Colombian, and the novel that I translated is, you know, is, is full of sort of not just language, not just particularities of, of language in Colombia, but also details of the culture. You know, I remember there's a lot of food vocabulary. And Colombia is a country that I really I know less about than some other Latin American countries. So that involved a lot of research for me. That's the only novel I've translated by a Colombian writer. Natasha, what about translating a living author? Do you collaborate more with the author? Is, is it more challenging? Well, it's funny because I think that that is the picture that people have of translation, if they think about it at all, is the writer sitting side by side with the translator and, and having these collegial discussions about word choice. Um, and I know that that does happen, but it for me, it has not happened so much. A lot of the writers I've translated have been inaccessible for one reason or another, but Rodrigo Freisan, actually, who is a, an Argentinian writer living in Spain, I probably had the most back and forth with him, and that was that was helpful. And actually, Laura Restrepo and I had lunch together and discussed some things, too. But she was living in Mexico at the time, and I was in New York. And usually the way it works, there's, if it's a living author, I'll try to answer as many questions as I can by myself, because writers who are translated, especially writers who are translated into a lot of languages, you know, they're busy. And if they really answered every single question that every translator from every language had for them, they would be... They'd spend all their time answering translation questions. So at the end of the book, the very n nagging sort of questions I have, I do ask. But yeah, it's, it's, it's a bit different. You feel a, a different sort of pressure, especially if you know the writer reads English. I would think. Yeah. <laughs> Did you talk to Chris Andrews at all when you took on The Savage Detectives because he had been Bolano's translator and also his friend? Yeah, I didn't talk to him before. We did we did talk afterwards. We we exchanged emails through our publishers. And he lives in Australia, but we haven't we haven't discussed technical questions or, you know, word choice or anything like that. We just have had sort of more general exchange. I really admire his translation and he's had only nice things to say so far about mine. So that's that's good. We don't we you know, we don't hate each other. <laughs> no, I wouldn't imagine you would. <laughs>
You were awarded a $20,000 grant from the National Endowment for the Arts to translate 2666. Which was essential. It was amazing. It was fantastic. How did that come about? You just applied? and Yeah, I applied. And I, you know, I, I kind of thought it was a long shot. And in fact, it was at a time when I was really busy and thought, well, you know, this isn't going to happen. But I think it was over Christmas break that I did the application. And then it came through and yeah, it makes a huge difference. I mean, that was, a, as you can imagine, that was a pretty large percentage of what I made on the translation overall. And you know, translators don't make a huge amount of money. So yeah, it made a really big difference. How do you choose books to translate at this point? I mean, now you're Natasha Wimmer. <laughs> well, you'd be surprised. I don't have a million offers coming in every single day. I mean, at this point, actually, I, I, I've done a lot more Bologna and there's still a lot more to come. So I've been kind of booked up. So I have had the luxury of being able to say, well, I, you know, sometimes the disadvantage of saying I, I can't I can't do this for a year. You know, if you want to wait a year, you know, people have come to me so far, mostly. And I, ha- I haven't been in the position of taking a writer I love to a publisher and saying, can I translate this book? And again, I think that that's something that happens more in fantasy than in reality. I don't think that many translators are in the position to do that. But I can anticipate possibly trying pull something like that off someday. Do you ever think to yourself, hmm, one day I'm going to write a novel of my own? No. You know, when I was younger, I thought that that was what I aspired to. I thought that I would write fiction someday. But I was never very good at writing fiction. And then one day in college, I met someone who said, you know, I want to be a writer, but I have no interest in being a fiction writer. I'm going to be a nonfiction writer. I'm going to be a, you know, I'm going to write essays and I'm going to write critical things and I'm going to write nonfiction. And I thought, oh, well, yeah. I could do that, too. I don't have to be a fiction writer. And I do like to write, and I and I have been trying to write more criticism. And, you know, who knows what might turn up someday. But I don't aspire to write fiction, which is kind of a relief, frankly. And right now you're working on another book by Roberto Bolano. Yep. Another novel. It's a book that's set in Spain, and it's called The Third Reich. It's about a player of war games. It's a funny novel. Right. Thank you for those great translations. I oh, mean, honestly, you're so welcome. I felt like you just gave us a gift. Oh, well, thank you. I really you. do. Thank you very much. Thank you, Natasha. That was NEA Literature Fellow Natasha Wimmer, best known for her translations of Roberto Bolaño's novels, The Savage Detectives and 2666. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Adam Campy is the musical supervisor. Original guitar music composed and performed by Jorge F. Hernandez. The Artworks Podcast is posted every Thursday at www.arts.gov. Next week, a conversation with a recipient of the NEA's 2010 Opera Honors, soprano Martina Arroyo. To find out how artworks in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.